1997 is a year of glory and legend in the University of Michigan's football fandom. Names like Charles Woodson, Tom Brady, and Brian Greasy live on forever in Ann Arbor because of that national championship year. It's all these players that were sort of like, at the time when the season starts in 1997, it's this uber-talented roster that no one believes in. Now there's a book looking at that season called Mountaintop, the inside story of 1997's title climb. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Joining us today are the authors Nick Baumgartner, senior writer at The Athletic, and also longtime sports writer Mark Snyder. The two of them work together. Hey, guys. Thank you, April. Glad to be with you. How did you two come to thinking that it was time to retell this story? Mark, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I think that, you know, this is a story that hasn't been told amazingly in the 25 years since this remarkable team captured its title. And it just seemed like, you know, they were approaching an anniversary. There was a lot of things coming up and guys are getting older. Most of them are now retired. You know, I guess they're all retired from playing and many of them are either retired from football together, whether it's coaching or anything. And Lloyd Carr, who was the coach of that team, and he said, this is something that I want to be a legacy project for all of these players. And then we went to all the players and they said they want it to be for him. So I think that there was a, it was it was less about, you know, the idea of putting something out there is more about having something for these guys to tell their story to generations later. Oh, the love. I mean, Nick, is it me or I kind of feel like Lloyd Carr's reputation right. in over time. I don't want to say like it's faded. People still have all the feels about him. But compared with like Bo Schembechler or what's happening now at the big house, like maybe people need to be reminded of of Lloyd Carr and what what that team did. Yeah, I mean, I think so in some ways. I think Mark and I talk about this a lot. You know, when Lloyd retired, he he retired. He went and lived his life. And and just sort of like most coaches do not do that. So I think that's part of it. And, you know, Lloyd is a Hall of Famer and he's got all the accolades and he doesn't really go around looking for that sort of thing. And it's interesting that – Mark approached me about this project, and yes, I mean, Lloyd's idea was I I want it to be about the kids because it's their thing. And then when we start getting into it and you start talking to the players and you start talking to the staffers and the assistants and on the other adults in the room really at that time who are Lloyd's peers, it just comes all the way back to like this guy was just uh, one of one. There was never at that era and maybe before, but in that era, there was no one like Lloyd Carr then. Uh, I don't believe we've seen one since. And I doubt we ever will. I mean, this, he's a very unique person to find himself in that job. Yeah. Maybe that says more about today's sports yeah, culture probably than it so. does about probably Lloyd so. Carr. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to know what questions – I mean, you two both were eating this up at the time that it was happening. Mm-hmm. But what questions you both had going in? Nick, you go first and then Mark. Yeah, for me, I think the big thing was, you know, why was that year different than all of the other sort of years? I, I knew that all those players were so talented and – that roster is one of the most talented that Michigan's ever had in terms of NFL, you know, Tom Brady's on there, Woodson, all these guys, Steve Hutchinson, Hall of Famer. So, you know, I knew that that was the case, but like, you know, 96, 95, 94 were struggles and they had as talented or more so. So my big question growing up is uh, I was in high school when this happened. I remembered every game. I remembered watching that team and of course Lloyd's career, but it was like, why was that one different than the ones before and the ones after? Because Lloyd had some terrific teams after that weren't able to go 12 and 0 and Michigan in general, you know, for 70 years, never, this is it, even today. And they still have to finish, you know, Jim's team has to finish. So yeah. that was my big thing. And I, I know Mark's answer might be different, but for me, that was my big one. Mark, what about you? 
Well, having lived through it and been so close to the situation, you know, being a student at the time and knowing a lot about what was happening, to me, it was more about the people specifically and kind of what made this bond unique for them. I mean, as Nick said, I guess Nick's looking at it more from probably a football perspective and made it, you know, what was so unique. For me, it was more of a people perspective and kind of what was unique about them in particular. Why were they different than other people? And that that was really what made it great to write it with Nick to kind of tell the story together is because we both came at it from different points of view and kind of met in the middle. Right. Mark, can you just sort of set the stage for us and remind us what Lloyd Carr's first two years at Michigan were like? They were unremarkable. At that point, you know, he had taken over for his best friend, Gary Moeller, who had been basically forced out of the job after a drunken public outburst at a restaurant. And Carr was angry when he took the job. And that's usually the opposite of anyone who takes a job like this, you know, one of the most prestigious jobs in the country in sports. And when he did that, he knew who he was, but he didn't really know if he was supposed to show it the way he wanted to. In those first two years, he tried to do it their way, tried to do it the way Bo Schembechler did it and Gary Moeller, his predecessors did it. And the fact that he wasn't having a lot of success that way, it wasn't true to him. And that was kind of part of the problem. So they lost four games each year, but each year ended with in the regular season with beating Ohio State. And at Michigan, that's enough to keep your job, no matter what's happening the rest of the year. And his kids were slowly coming around and they were learning about him. And that's kind of where they were going into that last season. I guess it would have been his last season if they didn't have a lot of success in 1997. It must have been such a pleasure to talk about sort of the recruiting path that led to 97. Nick, just so many names. I I mean, Charles Woodson, Tom Brady, Brian Greasy. It's okay, super group. I guess I'm fangirling a little bit. I have to say, too, I was ashamed of myself as a former Buckeye. I didn't realize that Woodson was from Fremont, Ohio, which is this tiny farm town. Yeah. In in the northwest, what and Desmond Howard's from uh, somewhere? What, is that Sandusky somewhere near somewhere? there? Yeah, yeah, right. Cleveland, Cleveland, yeah, right. yeah. crazy. <laughs> Nick, what did what did you feel was important to say about you know sort of the personnel path, other than just noting what an incredible generational bunch of talents this was? Yeah, I mean, I think in, you just look at all these guys, and it's it's coach and player in general, and it's all these players that were sort of like at the time when the season starts in 1997. It's this uber-talented roster that no one believes in, including Charles Woodson, you know, it's who was the, the best player in the country that nobody talked about. This was Peyton Manning's season to win the Heisman, all this sort of stuff. And Charles had All-American status and all this, but no one – and, you know, we talked to him in the book about why he dedicated himself that summer to prove to everyone that, you know, he was better than anyone had seen before or since. And I think that you saw these guys – and gals. I mean, everybody, the staffers, the people outside the building, they all came together in this moment of adversity through shared suffering and sort of found themselves together. And it just so happened that you had all these generational people here at once, and they all came from different paths. Tom Brady's story is, of course, you know, Michigan wasn't looking for a quarterback until one decommits, and then somebody randomly raises their hand and says, I know a guy who knows a guy, and let's figure <laughs> it out. And then so he's here, and then he nearly leaves, and Brian Greasy walks on and, you know, turns down the opportunity to go play at Purdue, where his father had played, of course, Bob Greasy, the famous quarterback. I mean, and so many guys. Charles Woodson was uh, going to come to Michigan as a running back and had told Lloyd Carr on his recruiting <laughs> visit that, no, I'm going to actually play corner. Lloyd was had never heard that before from any player and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm Who's, telling you. Who says that to their right. coach? He, he was, you know, jaw dropped. Okay, I guess we'll, we'll figure it out, right? And it was just, when you add it all up, the 1995 class, yes, is... Um, I think we write in the book, it's one of the greatest classes that's ever been assembled in college football history. Woodson and Tom Brady alone in it 
would have been enough right there. But there's several more players in there that NFL, you know. Mark, I've been wanting to ask, you know, the extent to which it was possible to sort of unwrite the Tom Brady story in your head for what you guys, you know, because again, like nobody knew where this was was going to end, either in terms of the championship or Brady's career. Did you find that you had to sort of undo, you know, what we all now know about him? Well, actually, I guess maybe for me and people who were in college at the same time as me, it wouldn't have been that difficult because we remember what he was and who he was and remember interacting with him when he was just a good college quarterback or, you know, competing with everyone else. And I think that that's the story we tell about Brady is really not about what came later. There's very little mention, if at all, in the whole book about what came later. It's more about him and what he did to compete, how he fought through it. You know, his first practice and the intensity of that first practice when he was the only quarterback and he kept getting knocked down and just kept getting back up and his resilience. I mean, you saw some of the traits that would make him that legendary player. But at the same time, you know, he just was one of the guys. And that's one of the things that's probably hard for him to remember, I would assume, at this point, too. You know, what that feeling was like to not be this international superstar. But at the time... He was just a guy fighting for a job and didn't know what the future held. And for us to put him back in that spot and to tell everyone what he was like, it's kind of cool for everyone to see what he was like. We need to take a break. More in just a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Everybody remembers that title game, but mm-hmm. boy, was it a pleasure to go back and, you know, chapter by chapter, all the <laughs> the beats yeah. and these these games that also stick out in memory mm-hmm. in, in just incredible ways. Nick, will you tell the story of the Notre Dame game? Yeah, the Notre Dame game is a really interesting one for uh, so many reasons. Of course, it's one that Lloyd took very personal. I think a lot of guys on the team did as well. At the end of 96, Michigan defensive coordinator Greg Madison, who was on the staff when Lloyd took the job for Gary Moeller, at the end of 96, it's in the book, uh, and Greg Madison basically goes to Lloyd Carr and, and says, I don't think you can win here. I don't think there's enough support to win a national title here. I'm going to Notre Dame. And in Notre Dame, of course, Bob Davey was the new coach there, and Bob Davey and Greg Madison go way back to Texas A&M. You know, that did not happen back then. People didn't leave Michigan for other lateral moves, as you, as we would say. Maybe Texas A&M wouldn't consider that a lateral move, but people here did. And a lot of people felt like they were being given up on, including Lloyd, including those players. And I think that, you know, as, as that sort of crystallized, you go into next season and there it is. And all those guys, offense and defense, I mean, we talked to, I think there was Chris Floyd had, had said, who's a fullback on the team, who'd remembered uh, there's a play where he came you know, threw on a, on a pass play and picked up a linebacker and just flattened him on a block. I mean, just, and you can see it folds him over and I mean, just crushed him. And he said, he remembers getting up and seeing Greg Madison standing about 15 feet away. And he said, he remembers thinking to myself, like, we got these guys because I know 
how he reacts when you do that to one of his linebackers. And it was like, at the end of that game, <laughs> you can go back and you watch it. Lloyd is jumping around on the sidelines. He's never been more excited uh, <laughs> ever. And I think that that sticking it across to the other side for that particular game was uh, as big a reason why as any. I also appreciated, Mark, the attention you guys paid to the chapter on the Penn State game, which was played in State College. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we can say it was a tragedy and also note that it was not the end of things for a lot of people involved. How did you guys approach what has been commonly known as the hit? Yeah, it's so interesting because that game, I mean, very rarely when you look back at a championship team, there's something happened in the middle of the season that becomes more important essentially than things that happened early or at the end of the season. And that's kind of what happened here. And we addressed it in multiple chapters. Dadrian Taylor, who was a defensive back. He was a reserve defensive back for part of the time, but he had been challenged by his teammates during the game, you know, to be physical and to kind of show that he wasn't going to back down. And on this play, he gave everything he had and he hit this tight end from Penn State. Watch this collision. Wow. That's powerful. That is Penn State's first first down and they may have paid a big price. And everyone in the building, you know, we talked to later said sounded like a shotgun, the loudest hit they ever heard in their football careers at whatever level. And unfortunately, ended both of their careers. And when they came back a couple of days later, Adrian Taylor was in a halo and everything, medical halo. And, you know, they both survived and, you know, they lived, went on to live lives, but not play football. And right. I think that but that moment really crystallized someone who gave themselves for the rest of the team. And that whole idea really resonated with the rest of the Wolverines. And they were already dominating that game. I mean, I think it was a matchup of top five teams. And that was what everyone going into it, ESPN called it Judgment Day with a couple of big games around the country. But the fact that Michigan went in there on the road and, you know, hammered Penn State and just dominated the game was the main thing people remember. But that hit really crystallized internally, especially people were concerned about it externally, but internally it became a rallying point where the rest of the team said, this guy gave his career for us and we need to validate that. How did the team not crumple under the psychological weight of that? Mm. I mean, what kinds of things did you find? I don't know if it was the things that you report Lloyd Carr having said to the players or, you know, just the culture of the team or how they felt about where they were when it happened. I mean, Charles Woodson, Mark talked to Charles specifically about this uh, for the book. It's in there about how, you know, he was so shook up that he thought about quitting on the spot. And I think that a lot of guys, they carry it with them today. Um, You know, we talked to Marcus Ray about this. And Marcus, of course, is a star safety at the time. And, you know, people all remember Marcus around here. And, like, (laughs) when we first started talking about Marcus, he was like, he just goes back and in his head and he's like, if I had done this and if I had done that, that never would have happened. Never would have happened. And there was like, and he's like, I had a conversation with someone so the other day about this. And it's like, it cost him his career. It cost him his his chance at his dream and they all carried it. And I think the point Mark says there at the end about how I think all of them internalized it as like, man, you know, we love this guy. He's one of our own and he gave himself for us because that's what we asked him to do more or less. And it just freakly happened that way. So... Yeah, it's one of those weird things. Dadrian, you know, he was at the reunion, walks, talks, uh, lives a happy life. You know, I think he's a coach. But yeah, you talk to those guys in a quiet moment, and and that's a sign of how close they are. April, also, you know, this is a football mentality, and Nick can speak to this because obviously he he watches football every week, and he's analyzing it and everything. You talk to football players, and they say, 
even though they had that moment with Adrian, for the most part, they just have to go past it. They understand it's a brutal game. They understand it changes people's lives physically over time. I mean, you see NFL with DeMar Hamlin last year. He had yeah. that moment, and they had to go on and play. They, these football players, it's different than every other sport. It's so brutal that they have to be able to compartmentalize or else they can't play the game. We talk a lot these days about how schedule makes a team right. or, or makes a season. Yeah, it really does. It was kind of crazy because I was looking at the book. I kind of looked at the schedule again. and it's <laughs> Yeah, something, isn't it? <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> what, what, what should the modern fan, like, you know, it may be that there are undergrads now looking right. at the schedule and going, how, though? Exactly. What were your reactions to looking back over the plot game by game? When your breather in that schedule is Baylor, who is now in the Big 12 or whatever they're in, right? There was no... Powder puff, none of that. There was no like, you know, tomato can or whatever you want to call them East on Carolina, the schedule. It did not yeah, right. exist, you know. <laughs> and it's like it was it's a sign of an era of college football that is certainly gone. And 1997, I think, was toward the end of that era, maybe if not the last chapter in it as the next year began the BCS era. But really it was an era, I think, when college football was smaller than it is today. Today we see this game that is in regional pockets all over the country, close to a national sport. I'm not sure if it's, you know, as big as any other pro sport, but, you know, on that dance floor in, in some levels. Back then, you just had these regional powers that sort of could consolidate talent at a level that I know people think there's no parity today, but back then, these rosters were so loaded, and these teams didn't shy away from playing schedules like that. Yeah, it's an era that we'll never get back, and it was just one of those things that made it really unique is that Nobody complained about it. It was just, well, we did this. We scheduled it, right? It was like, that's what the fans expect of us right. to play these marquee games. That's what we're going to do. Mark, do you miss those seasons? Obviously, I think that seeing great games is what any college football fan would want to see. When you see those games that aren't that, like the beginning of Michigan season this year, it's disappointing because you expect that they're going to win, and that's great that they win. You don't get that same emotion, that same feeling. I mean, it's not the NFL, and that's what makes college football so special, right, is those top games happen all the time, and they mean so much. And some of that's going to go away, obviously, going forward, you know, as the playoff expands and all of those things. But, you know, for the time being, when you live it and you do so many of those games and you're on the sideline for those games and you're covering them as, you know, Nick and I have for so many years, you can even as impartial observers, you know, not yeah. fans, you know, the rush and the emotion of those days is so different. OK, this one from our engineer, Mike Blank. Mm -hmm. If there had been oh, a championship go. game in 97, Michigan versus Nebraska. Yeah call it? Who would win? I do think Michigan would have won that game. I think that, you know, when you look back and, and we, we've talked about this a few times, we tried to put the statistical case together for the whole thing of why, you know, objectively as possible on both sides of the whole thing, knowing what we know. But if we look at it, the defense that they had that day was ridiculous. I mean, there's an NFL player at every single spot on the field, including a Hall of Famer. And I know that Nebraska's option was special and great, but Frankly, there were some guys that didn't say this, but they sort of hinted that Washington State, with all the pass attack and everything they did, may have been a tougher task than just lining up and playing the option. But, you know, we'll never know, sadly. Maybe uh, they could have figured it out at the White House. They almost did a few times. Oh. But, uh, yeah, that's my take on it. Guys, was there anything else I didn't ask you about this process or approaching it or, or talking to the players and staff that we should address? It was a joy for us, I think. I think that we enjoyed talking to all of these guys. We talked to over a hundred people. We talked to every key player, you know, in terms of that season and each one 
had such wonderful feelings for it and had, even the things that went wrong, even the problems that happened, they were so honest and giving with their time and their memories. And I think waiting 25 years is part of the reason for that. But part of the reason is to their passion for Lloyd Carr and wanting to give him this gift. And they wanted to be honest. They wanted to be accurate. And really, in terms of books and even in newspapers, and you rarely get people who are just going to give it. I mean, as you read in the book, April, you know, there are some things there that were not flattering and are embarrassing and are things that, you know, could have derailed this. And when they are willing to share all that, that's what makes a great book because it's these stories, it's their stories, and they wanted to give us their stories. We didn't have to kind of write around things or fish for things. They gave them to us. I would add that, you know, and I actually, Lloyd reminded me so much of my, once we got to know him, uh, of my favorite teacher in school, which was my football coach, Hall of Famer, Tim Furno, who is mentioned in this book. I noted him. He played with Lloyd at Northern Michigan. I gave him a copy of all that, so that was great. We got Lloyd to sign it. But it reminded me of playing on a team and, like, everyone sort of pulling together and doing something. You know what I mean? In it the just, best sense. In the best way possible. Yeah. Everything Lloyd says and does reminded me of that. And and those players, like Mark said, they all bought into it too. So in so many ways for me, this was like my, you know, yeah, it was a joy, like Mark said, but it's uh, for me, it's almost like a love letter to football and teams and what teams can do for people. Mark, Nick, thank you both so much for talking with us. Thank you, April. Thank you, April. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. If you want even more listening, you can always find full stateside show episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa, our podcast editor. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansak, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Meradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.